Hello and welcome to the Paranormal Sun, coming to you live from Tower Studios. I'm JT, and each week I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. Good morning, everyone. I hope you're all happy, healthy, and calm. I hope that you've had a good week, you enjoyed the weekend, you've had a good chance to catch up with your family and friends, and I'm glad to have you back here again to listen to the program. It's been quite an interesting week for myself. It's uh, becoming winter time here, so it's quite quite chilly in comparison to before. So we've been down overnight lows, uh, 4 or 5 degrees Celsius, which is uh, high 30s, lower 40s for those of you who... Uh, live in the world uh, that deal with Fahrenheit. So yeah, it's definitely getting crisp. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a good change. However, um, yeah, the sun is welcome during the days. Uh, again, I hope that you've had as good of a week as you could have wherever you are. I hope the weather's been good. Now, uh, on tonight's program, I've, I've got some updates for you, some general show updates. But first, I just wanted to cover over the main topic of tonight's program. Tonight's program is about a case that is not very well known, even amongst people in the UFO community. People like myself who have spent years studying this, reading up on this. So many people have heard the name, but they don't necessarily know what happened. Uh, So this is the 1950 Farmington, New Mexico UFO Armada case. Now what makes this case so fascinating is if one person sees a UFO... It's easy to explain that away. But what about hundreds of people seeing them in broad daylight? What about hundreds of people seeing them over a three-day period? What about thousands of people seeing them across multiple states and even multiple countries? So you're not going to want to miss this show and some of the information on the case. It's quite an old case, but some real luminaries in the UFO field uh, consider this one of the strongest cases that... Uh, It's not all swamp gas and weather balloons, so it is a very interesting case, and I think you'll enjoy it. Now, on tonight's program, I'll also be going back and covering over the news of the damned, as we've discussed before. These are three stories I try to read at the beginning of every program with emphasis on the life of Charles Fort, things that he would have found interesting. So it's not just about UFOs, it's not just about uh, ghosts, etc. There'll always be a good mix. And um, I encourage you as listeners to the show to send through any that you find that you would like me to read on air. So firstly, folks, I would like to say again, you know, thank you from the bottom of my heart, wherever you are, for listening to the show. It means it means the world to me. It really does. It's been a great outlet for me to get things out. Uh, this hasn't been the easiest journey for me, uh, not from a difficulty, just from a learning standpoint. I am what you would refer to as a IT Cro-Magna. I'm not a Neanderthal, but um, I'm definitely not a whiz kid that can bang out a website overnight. All of these things take learning for me. It's been really good for my brain, and I appreciate your patience. I know at times the show qualities aren't as good as we may like. Uh, I don't have big production values. Uh, unfortunately, with no job and my partner supporting me, uh, I, you know, the first place that I, I can spend what little money I have is, is not on the show. Now, I would like that to change at some point. Uh, one, of the, one of the news items I'd like to give you is that I have gotten a hold of the domain names for the paranormalsun.org and the paranormalsun.com. So I do now hold those website uh, addresses. 
I don't know what I'll be doing. I don't know if I'll get someone to set up a website or what. Uh, who knows? We'll see. Uh, eventually, if if this program picks up and we have more listeners and people are genuinely interested, I, I would I would really like to maybe you know do some merchandise, sell some merchandise on there. Um, there are lots of ideas I have, you know, as we all do, I think. And um, it it's been really it's been really uh, amazing the support that I've got so far. The support that I've got from others in the community as well. So when I say the community, I mean the paranormal community, the UFO community. I was really floored, to tell you the truth. I set up uh, a Instagram page for the show, as I've said, because I want to share some of the things I talk about on the air that you can't see over the uh, radio waves. And, you know, I set up the page honestly thinking that I would end up with a handful of people following but I've already got something uh, in the magnitude of 60, 65 followers on there. There are lots of people that follow you know, the posts. I try and give you multiple posts every week to kind of tease up to the show. Um, also, some of the things I may talk about in the show, I'll try and post up there. So, for example, you know, for tonight's show, I posted up a photograph of the front page of the Farmington newspaper talking about this UFO armada. I also posted up the one photo that's been attributed to the Farmington UFO uh, armada. It's not guaranteed it came from there, but you know, most people in the UFO field would see that photo. They would say, oh, that's from the Farmington armada case. So it's been great to have that support. And uh, yeah, look, look, folks, it's really humbling because when you get into this and you're a small fry like me, again, you know, I don't have a big budget. I don't have the production values of some people. And there are people out there that have got some really brilliant shows, brilliant websites. And when they go and support you and and like what you're putting out there, it, it really makes you feel grateful. I mean, I'm grateful for every one of you listening, but it's also great to have other people supporting the show. Now, on that note, one thing that I wanted to say is um, I brought it up on the show before, but uh, the Blurry Photos podcast. Now, that program was started by David Stecco and um, David Flora. Uh, David Stecco is uh, the sole host now. Now, David Stecco uh, actually reached out and uh, Blurry Photos podcast added me on the Instagram feed. Now, that was really humbling for me because, again, it might not sound much to you folks, but, you know, uh, this is a program that's got several thousand, you know, weekly listeners. Uh, good program. I always enjoyed their, their format. And uh, so to, to, to have that as, uh, you know, a, a follower, it's, uh, it's really humbling. And there's another program that I would like to mention to you. Uh, I, I, talked to, uh, I talked to Russell today over from uh, Hangar 18 Radio. And he's got a good show there. Um, I've listened to a few of the programs. He's just getting start out, started out, as am I. But he's an avid UFO uh, buff. And he's already covered over several of the, the case files that I've mentioned before and that I would like to cover in future. So he's covered over the Battle of Los Angeles. He's covered over the 1952 UFO uh, overflight of Washington, D.C., so yeah, you know, if you get a chance, go over there and check out his program. Uh, it's uh, it, it's worth listening to. Now, as I say, uh, the Paranormal Sun should now be up on Apple Podcasts, so you can look for it there as well as all of the normal places, Spotify, etc. If you go to the Anchor webpage, there's a link there for the website to the show, and again, that will take you over to the Patreon page. If you find value in what I do, if you would like to support the show, uh, every little bit helps. Uh, every dollar 
that is, you know, donated to the show will help with things like keeping the lights on around here. Uh, as long as I can afford to, and as long as I have the time, and as long as you want to listen, I fully plan to keep this show going. I really enjoy it. I enjoy the subject matter, and I appreciate each and every one of you who's listening. So, so uh, give yourselves a pat on the back. I really appreciate it. So now that I've covered that over, I just wanted to... Oh, sorry. One other thing that I have been asked about uh, along that line. I was asked by... I've been asked by a few people, you know, why don't you monetize the show? So in other words, you know, why don't you run ads? Uh, Why don't you start a YouTube page? Well, folks, number one, uh, Anchor has been a great platform for me because it doesn't cost me anything. It's fairly straightforward to run for a Cro-Magna like myself. Uh, but the problem is that they don't support uh, ads outside of the U.S. right now. As with a lot of uh, startup companies, they're U.S.-centric to start out with, and then, you know, someday uh, they may allow you to run ads on your program, but for now I can't, so I, I, I can't generate any income that way. And as for YouTube, I'm not averse to it, but getting it all set up and making sure that you tick all the boxes and jump through the correct hoops uh, it's it's harder than it sounds. Uh, I've known a few content creators who have gone on there, and um, people can go on your page and claim that you've ripped them off and you've taken something copyrighted from them. And in the meanwhile, uh, all of your views uh, are the that money is not going to you. You've been demonetized, and it is quite difficult. So all I'm saying is, uh, I look. I would like to look at that in the future when I've got some more program content up. But right now, it's not realistic for me to go over and start releasing everything on YouTube. And really, uh, at this point, I want to turn out the podcasts, and then, you know, eventually I can decide what to do with the back catalog. So many other programs much bigger than me uh, tend to avoid YouTube or are very hesitant to get involved in YouTube. And that should tell you all that you need to know. It's a very handy venue. Uh, I'm not going to lie. I I use YouTube all the time. I like having the app and being able to follow different things on there uh, and check out different programs if I want to look up a subject, but it's not the easiest thing to deal with uh, from a content creator standpoint. So now that I've covered over that, thank you very much for your patience. Uh, I'm now going to get into the news of the damned. So the first article I have here is from Popular Mechanics, and this was sent to me from one of the show's biggest supporters in North Carolina. So thank you, Mr. H. I do appreciate it. And this is titled, The, Me- the, the Magnetic Blob... Oh, sorry. The Magnetic North Pole is Rapidly Moving Because of Some Blobs. This was uh, published on May fifteenth, 2020, by Jennifer Lehman as the writer. And it says, it started in Canada and now it's inching closer to Siberia. Thanks a lot, blobs. The magnetic North Pole just isn't where it used to be. Ever since James Clark Ross first identified it on the Boothia Peninsula in Canada's Nunavut Territory in 1831, scientists have been carefully measuring its location ever since. But in recent years, it's been inching closer and closer to Siberia at a surprisingly rapid pace. Now researchers from UK and Denmark say that They've uncovered the reason for this mysterious movement. Two writhing lobes of magnetic force are duking it out near the Earth's core. Now, um, that should give you a good little synopsis. And again, I will put this up in the the show notes. Um, Magnetic drift is something that I have been aware of for quite a while. Uh, One of the biggest theories about the Bermuda Triangle and other supposed triangles and spots like this in the world uh, are magnetic field anomalies, so the magnetic field is much weaker there. 
which allows things, uh, you know, to behave differently, different weather patterns, different uh, earth forces uh, acting upon, you know, ships, planes, you name it. So uh, again, you know, this is not something new to me, but again, this is very Fortean because as Charles Fort always said, you know, science really loves to present that facade of a perfect wall and we know everything and we have all the answers. And again, you know, not to hash over the last episode too much, but as I watch a lot of these different programs I'll watch on television and I spend a lot of times watching things like uh, Discovery Channel, um, National Geographic, History Channel, and the scientists are always so damn sure that they have all the answers. Oh, this is how it happened. 2,000 years ago, this happened. Look, again, no offense to them, I really do appreciate the fact that we, we have scientists in this world who have learned a lot of things that all, all never know, have figured out things. However, you can't speak with such certainty. You weren't there, nor was anyone you know, nor anyone that they know. The reality is none of us can be certain what happened a hundred years ago, aside from what people tell us happened. Uh, and we definitely don't know what happened before, you know, the written history. So you go back more than four or five, six thousand years, we really don't know what happened back then. So, yeah, uh, again, whether it's skeptics, debunkers, or scientists in general, it's fine to be confident, but, you know, don't say with certainty this is what happened when there's no way we'll ever know for sure that's what happened. Best guess, you know, uh, I've always appreciated those scientists with a bit of humility that will say, this is our best thesis. Okay, so that was our first article. So that was about the magnetic pole shifting. The second uh, article here that I wanted to cover today, for those of you who haven't really read into Charles Fort too much, it is a, a lot of the bulk of the stuff that Charles Fort covered over. One of his major topics is about mysteries at sea, missing ships. He covered over the Mary Celeste, which is probably the most famous uh, missing missing crew episode in the history of uh, life at sea, and this one is about uh, the Octavius. So this one is titled "Captain Found Frozen Stiff, Pen Still in Hand: Mystery of the Octavius." This is dated July second, two thousand eighteen, and this comes from the Vintage News. And again, I'll have a link in the show notes. So I'll just give you a brief read here, and it says, The world of mystery and mysticism is filled with a cornucopia of stories, much of which were born out of legends and myths. The bizarre story around the, the Octavius ship is one of them, and quite intriguing. It is a tale that involves a mysterious disappearance and a captain frozen stiff, still seated behind his desk, and a crew that suffered the same fate. Some say that this is not a mere legend. It was October 11, 1775, when the whaler ship Herald stumbled upon a rather strange-looking schooner. The crew of the Herald thought it was suspicious that the badly weather-beaten boat was drifting and decided to give it a closer inspection. They boarded the drifting Octavius. There they discovered the reason why there was no activity on the decks. But to fully grasp this legend, one must travel back to 1761, for that is when the journey of the Octavius began, 14 years before she was found by the Herald. Leaving the port of London, the 28 sailors began their journey towards China. Now, I won't ruin it for you folks. Again, I will put links to the show notes up there. But I do remember cases from Charles Fort and others. Uh, 
ships being found crewed by skeletons, ships being found with no one on board, sailing at sea. You know, this is where that term ghost ship comes from or phantom ship. Yes, you could be talking about a spectral ship, but oftentimes they're talking about a sailing ship, uh, sailing and unmanned. So uh, it's quite an interesting story, and I do think you'll enjoy it. If any mysteries of the sea interest you, that's definitely a good article, and I'll put the link in the show notes. So the last one here is also from the Vintage News, and again, this is this is quite a good one. And again, something that Charles Fort spent a lot of time covering, which is about fossils. So the the title of this article is, Fossil Kept in Drawer 40 Years Turns Out to Be Giant New Species of Apex Predator. Now, this was only published on April 22nd of 2019, so just about a year ago, folks. So again, this just goes to show that science is always learning new things, and any scientist who tells you they've got all the answers is smoking something I would like to have some of because they're just completely out of touch with reality. On April 18th, 2019, a scientific paper was published in the Journal of Vertebrate Paleontology, based on the analysis of a small collection of fossils discovered in Kenya in the late 1970s. The remains of the mysterious creature, first classified as a hyena, spent years in a drawer of the Nairobi National Museum before catching the eye of American paleontologist Matthew Bortz and, and Nancy Stevens. In 2013, at the time, Bortz was doing research for his doctorate degree dis- dissertation. According to Nature, Bortz recognized the jaw as that of a hyena daunt, but it was much larger and much more complete than most examples he'd seen before, and in better condition. Now, I'm just looking here, and it's basically saying that this creature had a 40-centimeter long jaw. It could prey on elephant-sized herbivores, so this is obviously a massive apex predator, not the type of thing that you would want to run into. Uh, It's estimated that it weighed around 3,300 pounds or 1,500 kilos, was 8 feet long and 4 feet tall. So folks, if you think Bigfoot is something that you wouldn't want to run into, this is definitely not something that uh, we we would want to see. So again, I'll put the notes uh, in in the show notes there, a link to the page. But again, I I think this is quite interesting. And again, every week I'll do my best to bring you three articles, and there's plenty of strange news out there. So if there's ever anything that you would like me to cover over, something that you've read or a byline that you find quite interesting, do as Mr. H has done in North Carolina and send send it my way. You know, you can email me at theparanormalsun at gmail.com. You can just send me a note on the Anchor podcast page you can send me a voice message on there uh, you can message me on instagram if you'd like you can go over to the the paranormal sun at instagram and send me a message on there so if it's got interest to you my friends i'll be happy to read it on the air so now we'll get into the meat and potatoes of this episode apologies to any vegetarians out there but uh some of the nomenclature some of the some of the things you learn to say as as you age uh I don't always think that it's you know may bother some people so if it does I'm sorry but uh uh it's very difficult for an old dog like me to to uh change his ways and everything so uh this sighting or series of sightings occurred March 16th through, or sorry, March 15th, 16th, and 17th of 1950. So that was a Wednesday, Thursday, and a Friday. 
for those of you who don't know, Farmington, New Mexico is in the far northwest of the state of New Mexico. It is very close to the Four Corners. I've been in that area. I don't know for sure if I've been to Farmington because I was very young. We had uh, very close family friends that lived in Truth or Consequences. And so we spent time here, you know, traveling back and forth through New Mexico, visiting them. Uh, so I've been to that area, and it's not the flat desert uh, many people will think of when you see a movie. It is, it is flat, but there are many areas where there are mountains. I mean, in this area, you've got the Sandia Range. You've got, uh, in other parts of New Mexico, you've got the Superstition Mountains, which I mentioned before. So, yes, you have a mix of high desert, but you also have a, a lot of mountains and hills. So to give you a little bit of a background on... The U.S. government's approach to UFOs over the last really nearly 100 years now, but, but basically from the early 40s up until the, the 70s. By giving you this background, you'll understand a bit more the reactions, the way that they treated this case as they do other cases. And again, some of you don't have the time invested in the UFO phenomenon that I do. So for what to me may be second nature, and I say, oh yeah, I know about that. You may not. So in 1947, the U.S. government commissioned what was called Project Sign. So there have been several projects over time to look at UFO cases and investigate them. Uh, the 1947 Project Sign case was actually quite interesting because when they went through all of the cases they looked at, their conclusion was that there was something in the air, you know, something in the skies over the U.S. and other places. It wasn't the U.S. government. They didn't know what it was, and they were very concerned about it. Now, I'm sorry, I don't have it right in front of me, but uh, there was a Air Force sergeant who stated that basically this result was sent to the Pentagon, and the general at the time, and again, I do apologize, I just don't have his time off the top, I don't have his name off the top of my head, uh, the general at the time basically refused it, and he said, I'm not accepting that. So he basically sent it back to them and said, send me something, you know, more realistic, because I'm not going to tell the nation, I'm not going to tell the president and everyone else that we can't control the airspace. So then they basically said it was inconclusive. Then in 1949, Project Grudge started. Now, for those of you who don't know, U.S. military projects are always meant to be random. But uh, there is a strong feeling in the UFO community, and there are allusions to it through different military channels, that the, the name Project Grudge was chosen on purpose because the military was actually quite annoyed by UFOlogy and the fact that they wouldn't let this go and just do as they're told, basically, and believe that everyone had hallucinated or seen swamp gas or seen the planet Venus or seen lighthouses uh, or other very mundane uh, types of explanations. 1952 is when the most famous case started, and that was Project Blue Book. And Project Blue Book also ran the longest. So Project Blue Book ran from 1952 to 1969. Now, between those three projects, they studied 12,618 cases. So over 10,000 cases. That is a very significant sample size. Uh, now, 
the stated objectives of Project Blue Book were, number one was to determine if UFOs were a threat to national security, and number two, to scientifically analyze UFO-related data. Now, so out of 12,618 cases at the time, there were several that Project Blue Book would put into the unexplained pile. Um, you'll often hear bandied about in ufology that about 5% of all cases are not explained. And, and that's a pretty good number. You know, you can kind of go 3 to 5%. So in this case, out of 12,618 cases, you would be talking about, what's that, about 360 to 600 cases that would be unexplained. In other words, they don't they 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 couldn't pin it to a flight of planes or a balloon or uh, anything else at the time and so the way that the government would explain it at that time they would just say unexplained now there's a very famous report in ufology it's called the condon report and in 1968 the condon report determined that there was nothing anomalous about ufos and closed down project blue book so they basically said there was no threat uh, there's nothing anomalous, nothing to see here, folks. Uh, go go back to your 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 lives and don't worry about it. But we do know for a fact that uh, since that happened, uh, officially, for years and years, that was the last known study that the U.S. government or military had taken into UFOs. But we all know now that that's a lie. They continued in secret. Uh, the in, the instances as of late with the Pentagon admitting that those UFOs on the footage from the Nimitz and other places are, are UFOs, they can't explain them, tells you all you need to know, folks. Um, look, I know there are some topics in this world that are quite divisive, and there are a lot of people who don't believe that the government could possibly cover up something as massive as UFOs, but I do believe there's definitely something odd going on there. Uh, as the old saying goes, where there's smoke, there's fire. And just because there's something strange that we can't explain or they won't tell us they can explain, it doesn't necessarily have to be aliens from Zeta Reticuli. It could be unknown phenomenon. It could be secret military projects, which I do think a large part of these are. My basis is it only takes one. As I've said before, uh, Richard C. Hoagland says it only takes one white crow to prove that not all crows are black. And that is the reality of it here. Uh, just because we, you know, I, I hear some of the scientists, there's a, a man from SETI. Uh, I think he's a very intelligent man. And overall, I don't have a problem with him. His name's Seth, Seth Shostak. And he says, oh, where's the ashtray from a UFO? Where's, where's, the, uh, where's the rear view mirror? So in other words, he's saying, show us physical proof before we're going to believe any of this. So that gives you a bit of a background of the way that the government approached these things. And, you know, a lot of the things that are standard now, such as blaming these things on people being drunk, blaming these things on mass hallucinations, this all came from these projects in the 40s and 50s and the discrediting of witnesses. I mean, you've got some really high class and good witnesses that have been discredited over time by the military and people associated with the military. So the military is not stupid, my friends. Uh, they're smart enough to work out that they can't go around calling everyone a crank, so they fund other people to do it. There are debunkers and, and others that you know have been paid or, or have affiliations with the military uh, or with uh, astronomy, etc., who then go out and do the dirty work of the military. So uh, the first thing that I wanted to say about the Farmington case is 
the person who I couldn't have done the show without really, and the person who we wouldn't know a lot of what we do know now, uh, is a gentleman named David Marler. And he's got a brilliant website all about the Farmington case. He's gathered news from all kinds of witnesses. And um, yeah, I'll, I'll tell you what, folks, he really did a thorough job. I remember reading a little bit on this case when I was younger. So again, we're talking about books written in the 60s and 70s. And it was very, uh, you know, short and sharp. There wasn't a lot of information. So, uh, you know, if David wouldn't have done all of this and put this all together, he's basically the sole source for the majority of a, a, a lot of tonight's subject matter. Now, I did find information elsewhere, and I've covered that over. However, you know, David Marler's really done a service to ufology at large, and he deserves full credit for all the research that he's done with others. So to cover over the case uh, for you, Farmington uh, at the time had a population of between three and 5,000. It's quite difficult. I know that sounds, oh, well, how can you not know the population? But uh, back then, especially in rural areas of the country, you would have many people who kind of semi-lived in town. You know, they might be herders or farmers, and so they would be in and out of town a lot. But, you know, just keep that in mind. There were about three to 5,000 people in uh, the town of Farmington in 1950. Now, for three days, March 15th, 16th, and 17th, uh, these sightings occurred. Uh, the newspaper article that I have linked in the Instagram page was published on the 18th of March. Uh, people saw unidentified objects, both flying individually and in formation. As they moved, they maintained formation. So that is very important because, you know, just like you see in the movie and you see fighter jets, if one jet turns to the left, they all follow. That's what these objects were doing. Uh, you know, it wasn't that one turned and then everyone else went a different direction. So there were lone objects. There were handfuls of objects, so kind of the three to nine. And then there were hundreds of objects all seen in different configurations. Uh, so this was seen in the middle of the day. And it was seen by at least hundreds, if not thousands, of witnesses in and around Farmington, but also in places like Albuquerque, New Mexico, Las Vegas, New Mexico, Eunice, New Mexico, Tucumari, New Mexico, which is completely across the state on the other end, and Colorado, Texas, and Mexico. So as I say, this was seen by thousands of people across the American Southwest and into Mexico. This was not just a case for Farmington. This was actually quite a large flap. Farmington is, uh, as I've said, you know, Farmington is very close to the Four Corners, and um, anyone who's really studied into the paranormal mysticism, especially American uh, Indian legends and myths, if you study up on the Four Corners, you will know that that area is a hotbed for the paranormal and unexplained. So on Wednesday the 15th at 11 a.m., this is when it all started off, folks, from 11 to noon, the first wave of sightings were seen over Farmington. So uh, the witnesses said there were between 6 and 20 objects, and they were seen moving from the east to the west. So that was it for Wednesday. Wednesday was a little bit of a build-up. As David Marler himself has said, he looks at it as kind of like the tremors that build up to the earthquake. Now on Thursday, March, 7th, uh, March 16th, between 10 and 10.30 a.m., the first wave of objects for that day were seen. Numerous objects is, is what was stated in the newspaper, so we don't have an exact number. 
At 11 a.m. to 11.05 a.m., a second wave was sighted, estimated at 15 objects. They were reflective objects. They looked to be metallic, and they were varying objects at varying altitudes traveling varying directions. Between 10 to 20,000 feet was the estimate. Now, that's very important when we get to the Air Force's explanation at the end. So keep that in mind that these were these objects were seen at various altitudes traveling various directions and all between 10 and 20,000 feet was the estimate. Now Friday the 17th is when it really kicked off. So Friday the 17th in the early morning a solitary saucer-shaped object was witnessed at 9:15 across the state in Tucumari. So as I say this this is across the state towards Texas. And uh, the where Farmington is, it's close to the Nevada border. There was a solitary saucer spotted flying over two workers digging a drainage ditch, also at nine fifteen in Farmington. Oh, sorry, that that is actually that first sighting at nine fifteen in Tucumari. Now, in Farmington, between nine fifteen and nine twenty five, five to nine saucers were seen. They left to the northeast with others, so with other saucers that were later spotted west of town. At 10 a.m., hundreds of objects were seen west of town. At 10.30 a.m., a red object was observed while in the southeast part of town. Two revolving disks were seen. Witnesses stated that these disks appeared to be having a tussle in the sky. Some others called it a dogfight. Others saw saucers. They said they were swooping and turning like tops. At 10.35 a.m., three objects were seen staging a dogfight. At 11 a.m., two metallic UFOs were seen. A smaller one was moving fast south to north, and a larger one remained stationary. From 11.15 to 11.30 a.m., hundreds of objects were reported, with one red object, among them that left towards the northeast. At 2 p.m. that same day, a silvery object described as a rectangle with rounded ends, I kind of think of it as almost an eraser with rubbed off ends, was seen moving east towards over Farmington, east to west. At 3 p.m., a fleet of hundreds flying in formation was seen from the northeast to the southwest over downtown Farmington. At 3 p.m., aircrew at Kirkland Air Force Base in Albuquerque, which is several hundred miles away, saw three objects tumbling, so they looked like stones that had been thrown or a baseball that was tumbling in the air. It disappeared over the Sandia Mountains to the northeast. Now, later there were sightings in Las Vegas, New Mexico, which is in that same direction, so northeast from, from, uh, from the base, from Kirkland Air Force Base in Albuquerque. Later in the afternoon, several saucers were seen over Tucumari. One of them was red. In all, about 85% of the people in Farmington at least saw something in the sky. Now, that's an amazing figure, folks. You know, you even think of a small town with 1,000 people, and you tell me 850 people saw something. Uh, and again, I'll get that to uh, I'll get I'll get around to that at the end with the explanations and why that's so important. Now, Professor Lincoln LaPaz, he was a very serious man, and he was involved in later Project Blue Book cases. He was a very intelligent man and well thought of in the scientific community. Now, he looked into this case, and uh, he thought he could very quickly explain it by being a meteorite or meteorites burning up in the atmosphere. But after he tracked down several of the trajectories and he found nothing, him and his assistants, he stated in the paper that, quote, these sightings belong in the quite serious class, unquote. 
Now, that's quite interesting, folks, because, again, here you've got a prominent scientist saying this is serious. This is not an illusion. This is not a hallucination. People have seen things that we can't explain, and it's something to be concerned about. Uh, as I say, you know, Lincoln LaPaz, he worked uh, with the Air Force, and he was involved in Project Twinkle. And some people say that he was sent by the Air Force to interview witnesses um, and plot a tra trajectory after the uh, supposed UFO crash at Roswell. So there have been three people step forward to say that he was involved in that. There is a little bit of controversy around it. But basically what I'm saying here is this is a man in the know. This is a man who later went on to be involved in Project Blue Book. He had several conversations and collaborations with J. Allen Hynek. This was not some, you know, country scientist who knew nothing. This this was a very intelligent man with, with a good background. Now, one police officer in Farmington said it was only blowing cotton. Uh, now, uh, so he was basically trying to explain it away right away. Uh, now, this is uh, in, in quite the contrary to a lot of cases where, you know, over the years we've heard that police officers can't explain these things. So it seems almost that Although the military may be involved in an overall cover-up or an overall uh, debunking, um, seems like the civilian police are not so much. But uh, in this case, this officer, and I couldn't find out his name, he said it was blowing cotton. But uh, several witnesses who'd lived in that area their whole lives, they, they asked this question, which is a very pertinent question. Now, we'd seen blowing cotton around many times, Right. And we saw it again many times in the future. So why would we suddenly be fascinated by it on this one case in 1950 and never be fascinated by it again if it was blowing cotton? Now, to me, that is, uh, you know, a, a very important question. And uh, again, we're not talking about tourists who are in this town that don't know the town, don't know the area. You're talking about lifelong residents. For those of you who don't know, again, this area of the U.S., especially back at that time, People didn't migrate like they do so much today. Generally, you worked in one area, you stayed in one area. The odd person might move, but you know, in a town of that size of uh, three to five thousand people, you might only have a uh, you know a hundred people move every ten years. It, it just didn't happen. So these people knew the skies around that area. It's no different than uh, where I'm from originally. You can see the Northern Lights. Now, if me and all my neighbors were reporting something that weren't the Northern Lights, and we'd grown up there and we knew those skies. For someone to come along and say, oh, it was the Northern Lights. Well, you know, sorry. If I was a tourist, maybe. Now, one witness triangulated the object. So this was a former military uh, person who had served in World War II. So he witnessed, um, he triangulated the objects, and he said that he believed they were traveling over 1,000 miles an hour. That's about 1,500 kilometers an hour. And about twice the size of a B-29. Now, for those of you who don't know, a B-29 is a massive plane. It's the bomber that dropped the atomic bombs over Japan. Um, and a B-29 is uh, about 99 feet long, which is about 30 meters, and a wingspan of 141 feet, which is about 43 meters. So he was estimating that these objects were uh, about 200 or 30 meters by uh, 141 by, uh, or 43 meters, uh, sorry, 282 or 86 meters. So quite large objects is what I'm saying here, you know. We're not talking about the car-sized UFOs. Now, uh, there were some other instances, uh, you know. Sorry, folks. Um, so there were articles in the Santa Fe Mexican and the Las Vegas Daily Optic. 
All right. So th these are aside from the, the paper in, in Farmington, which I posted up on the page. So there were several papers across the country that, that picked up these uh, these stories. Some of them just published the story as it sat in the Farmington paper. Some of them, uh, you know, kind of did their own spiel on it. But as far as I know, no one actually sent writers out to Farmington to gather information. Now, again, as I say, uh, just to recap, these objects were viewed each day between 11 and noon, uh, some days into the afternoon, especially on the 17th. The paper in Farmington was deluged with phone calls and people on Main Street were stopping and pointing to the sky. People said that these objects were playing tag and moving away at unbelievable speeds. Merchants, mechanics, housewives, ex-military, insurance agents, police officers were all some of the, the people who saw these objects. So a very good broad of, uh, swoop of society. So again, when I get down to the explanations at the end, you'll understand why I've documented this. Now, Marlon Webb was a manager at the parts department at the Chevrolet garage in town. Now, why that's important is that he would later become the mayor of the town in the 70s. Now, he said that he saw 10 to 20 flying loosely together, east to west, darting around like leaves being blown in the sky. Now, he observed them for about 10 or 15 minutes before returning to work. Now, to us today, you know, you might say, why would you walk away from a UFO sighting? But at that time, it wasn't nearly as big of a deal as we see it today. And the truth is, if you look at a lot of the witness testimony, you know, they'll, they'll say, look, it was, it was something interesting. But like Marlon said on that day, there was no one to cover my department. I had to get back to work. Now, I, I've got some, some really interesting stories here from a Mary Lou Wayborn. So she was away at college in Missouri during this uh, sightings. But when she returned home that fall, many of her friends told her about it. So she said most of her friends and family, you know, were all, you know, stirred up about this, uh, this sighting. So a group of her friends took her out to the desert to show her a purported landing site. She described it as a large circle with the sagebrush pressed down. So for those of you who don't know, sagebrush uh, is almost, it's got quite a difficult, uh, quite a hard interior of wood. So it's similar to something like uh, raspberry bushes or something, that being trampled down. So what I'm saying is it would be quite difficult to force that down without some real weight to it. She said it was about a, a 60 foot radius, which is about 20 meters, and there were singe marks along the edge on the weeds. She since said that, you know, she didn't really think much about, you know, telling anyone or having this analyzed by scientists. But again, this is something that's a bit of an ongoing topic in UFO cases. You'll hear these stories about circular patterns in the desert and the sand in things like sagebrush with, with uh, singed edges. So it is very interesting. A Farmington resident named Pauline McCauley said that she was a young girl at the time and was out herding sheep when she heard a sound. She looked up and she saw what she described as a circular object that looked like a bowl was tipped upside down. It had windows and through the windows she could see three people wearing striped caps and navy blue uniforms with brass buttons. She said that she didn't tell her friends at school because she was afraid they would think she was crazy. She did later tell some of her family. Ron Boddy said that his father, who was still a major in the Army Reserve at that time, recalls that his dad got a phone call later from an official asking him to refrain from speaking about it or doing any further interviews with the press. On March 18th, 
two technical sergeants saw three strange objects in the sky over Kirkland Air Force Base. So I alluded to that when I gave you the earlier timeline, but why that's important is, uh, again, you know, you're not talking about just, uh, you know, privates. You're talking about sergeants. And people like that aren't going to go on the record unless they're sure of what they saw. Now, Virgil Jerry Riggs was eight years old, and this is quite an interesting account. So he remembered going outside for recess uh, during the school day. And he thought that there were stars out when he looked up in the sky. But the older kids and the high school kids pointed out to him that the objects were there. Virgil says the first day there were a few. The second day there were too many to count. And the last day he saw 30 or four. He said that people had to look as they were very high up. He said that one teacher cried, but none of the students were afraid as they didn't feel threatened. He said, I was really disappointed the day they went away. A bunch of us kids thought, what do we do now? Go and play on the slide? So yeah, that is, that is quite interesting because it directly flies in the face of the, mil the military's kind of surreptitious reason that if there were extraterrestrials, why they would not divulge it to the American public, uh, the fact that there would be panic in the streets, um, you know, we would have, uh, you know, people rioting and looting and everything else. Now, on Thursday the 16th, there were so many flying in formation that Jerry and another witness also said that it looked like dots of the dominoes moving across the whole sky. So imagine dominoes and the dots and just seeing those dots staying in formation and moving across the whole sky. So that's how many there were, folks. I mean, we're talking about, at the very least, several hundred of these objects. So, it's, look, it's a fascinating case. It's something that doesn't get the traction, doesn't get the coverage that it does today, uh, that it should. And unfortunately, it's getting to, the, to uh, the case with a lot of these older cases where most of the witnesses have either died or they are dying. So it's been really good to see that, uh, you know, some of this uh, has, has been retained and that a lot of these facts have been gathered. Now, the Air Force's official con conclusion, now this shouldn't shock anyone, but, but I do find it quite humorous. So the Air Force says that it was a skyhook balloon, that the balloon launched from White Sands, and when it got to 60,000 feet in the atmosphere, it ruptured. And people saw the debris, uh, the debris and that people were uh, also drinking because it was St. Patrick's Day. So, okay, let's look at this logically. So you've got 15th, 16th, 17th. Okay. Let's just give you the balloon argument, just, just for argument's sake. Let's give you that balloon argument. What about the other two days? No balloons. Not even the Air Force says there were balloons. And again, this just fits the pattern of people saying, oh, everyone was drunk. They were drunk on hillbilly moonshine, and that's why, uh, that's why they, they saw things in the sky. And this is a classic pattern in ufology. Some of the papers that picked up the story made commentary around, you know, people being high on hillbilly moonshine, uh, you know, in, you know, on St. Patrick's Day. Now, on the whole skyhook balloon thing, Dr. James McDonald, um, he later contacted the Office of Naval Research, and he found that there were no balloons launched on any of those days anywhere in the area. The only skyhook balloon launched on any of the days of the 15th, the 16th, or the 17th in the entire U.S. was launched in Minnesota and broke up over Michigan. Now, my friends, I don't know how well you know your geography, but Michigan is a hell of a long way from New Mexico. And if the people in New Mexico could see bits of a balloon in the atmosphere in Michigan, yeah, that's, that's more fascinating than the UFO case. Now, um, 
The other thing, you know, so so the military said that it was uh, this debris blowing in the wind, and other people have said that it was debris blowing in the wind, but oftentimes these objects were seen moving against the wind. So again, you tell me how a small bit of plastic that's being blown by a high-altitude wind is going to move against the wind. And again, how are all these pieces flying in formation? So look, this is a really fascinating case. There have been other explanations given over the years are mass hallucinations, LSD in the water supply. Okay. First off, LSD wasn't around in 1950 that I know of, not on a man-made synthetic level. Secondly, who the hell is dosing the, the water supply of a major U.S. town with LSD? If there is a mass hallucination, why would 85% of the people in town see these things, and then not go on to say, oh, I saw them the next day, I saw them the next week. So I'm sorry, but for me personally, none of these hold water, none of these explanations. I really believe that the only reason there has not been a more hardcore effort to debunk this case is, as I've said before, this is not the most well-known case. It happened a long time ago. The witnesses are dying off. As has been stated by many people researching Roswell, people are basically chasing the, the, the reaper or, or, or chasing, the, um, chasing the undertaker because people are dying so fast. And unfortunately, my friends, that is the fact. Uh, a lot of these older cases that I was fascinated by, the Farmington case, uh, Kelly Hop Hopkinsville, the Flatwoods Monster, most of the primary witnesses are either dead or, you know, on their last legs. So, look... This is a fascinating story. I will put a link over to the website of, sorry here, of Mr. David Marler because, as I say, he's done a, a phenomenal job, and without his research, I couldn't have done this program. I do really hope that you've enjoyed this. I'm not going to get, go into what are my theories. Again, as I say, I try to leave that for you. Um, I will say this. For me, it goes, it's either been... Explain with a rational explanation that I can agree with or the majority of people can agree with, or it's unexplained. So for me, this is firmly in the unexplained camp. And it is quite sad that there's not more documentation, there's not more photos, there's not more video. But the Farmington case for me definitely moves into my top tier of UFO cases. It's definitely something that you should look into if you want to know more about it. Now, my friends, thank you again for listening to the show. I do wish you uh, all the best. I hope that you have a great week. I'm not quite sure what the next uh, subject uh, will be of the show, uh, but I'll launch a video here in the next day or so to, to uh, let you know what's going to be the next program. And uh, again, thanks for uh, listening to me. And to sign off again, I'd like to quote Art Bell, with uh, a mind should not be so open that the brain falls out. However, it should not be closed so that whatever gray matter which does, does reside within may not be reached. So with that, my friends, you have a great week. Take care and uh, keep listening.